pray. <clears throat> Lord our God, we thank you that you have brought us together this morning in one heart and one voice and one mind, focused on you, our Lord and our Saviour. Pray that you'll be with us now as we reflect on your word and help us to be more equipped to go out into your world to help build that unity in the middle of a world racked by so many divisions. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, was it really only two weeks ago that we had the coronation of King Charles III? Just two weeks ago. And the whole of the area around us has been transformed back into what it normally is, instead of all those platforms that obscured our view of the Abbey and not to mention all the barriers and the crowds and all the rest of it. Yes, King Charles was crowned two weeks ago. And there are some things, of course, that we shall be expecting of the king. We shall expect to see him at the Trooping of the Colour. We shall expect him to see him at the state opening of Parliament, when we get round to that. And, of course, we shall be expecting to see him or hear him or both uh, when it comes to Christmas Day and uh, a broadcast, the annual broadcast that we've become so used to from the Sovereign but we shall not be expecting him to don a full suit of armour and lead an army into battle, I hope. But in centuries past, of course, that's exactly what kings did. And a few queens as well, of course. I was reminded as I walked across Westminster Bridge last night, that fearsome uh, statue of Queen Bodicea. Wouldn't want to meet her on a dark night. But uh, that's what kings and some queens did. They would uh, lead their people into battle in order to try and uh, take extra lands and all the rest of it. And then when they were victorious, they would lead a whole company of their enemies. They'd bring them back home. They'd parade them through the streets in order to celebrate their victory, but in also to humiliate their enemies, humiliate them in their defeat. And as well as humiliating them publicly, they would demand gifts from them. They would take everything they'd got to give. It was a kind of enforced homage. And it's that kind of picture of God that's painted in Psalm 68. It's the psalm that begins, um, May God arise and may his enemies be scattered. I wonder how often you've wanted to pray that prayer when you've looked out on the world on a pretty bleak day when things are going badly and everything seems to be completely upside down and mad you've wanted to say oh for goodness sake God arise do something scatter your enemies put the world to rights but it doesn't quite happen like that but during the course of that psalm God is pictured as a victorious warlord who comes into his sanctuary uh, in Jerusalem from battle and the psalm goes on when you ascended on high you took many captives you received gifts from your people, even from the rebellious. It's a picture of a warlord who exacts gifts from the people that he has conquered and makes them do homage to him. And it's this very verse that Paul quotes when he writes to the Ephesians and he wants to talk about the ascension of Jesus. Or to be more precise, it is this verse that he misquotes. But I'll come back to that in a minute. You may just want to stop and ask the very question, why is God uh, pictured as a warlord in the first place? Why should Jesus Christ be pictured as a warlord? Well, it comes very clearly, I think, from the witness of the Gospels. 
Jesus is, the ministry of Jesus is described on many occasions being a battle, a battle against disease, a battle against the devil, a battle against the demons that people felt were damaging their lives, a battle against the dogmatism that Jesus fought with the temple authorities, a battle against their vested interests, powerful uh, corruption in high places, a struggle with what Paul came to call principalities and powers. The whole of Jesus' ministry can actually be viewed as a battle. And that battle, of course, came to its culmination on Good Friday on Calvary when Jesus was victorious. He defeated everything. He was defeated by nothing, even the very worst. And the vindication of his victory in the battle became clear on Easter Day with his resurrection. And we capture something of the sense of that victory of Jesus over all the powers of evil and darkness when we sing some of our Easter hymns. Um, one of the oldest ones we sing, I think, is the strife is all the battle done. Now is the victor's triumph won. And when Paul wrote uh, that letter to the Ephesians, he writes about this Jesus who came down from heaven to engage in a battle, a battle against sin, the demonic powers, and won the battle and who returned to heaven as a victor. And then he picks up this verse from Psalm 68 that I quoted uh, a few minutes ago. He, having talked about Jesus as being something of a warlord and fighting a battle, he then uh, goes on to talk about leading captives. But then he misquotes the rest of the verse. Instead of reading, and he received gifts or demanded homage from his enemies, Paul makes it read, and he gave gifts to his people. Now, we all learned in primary school about opposites, didn't we? You know, you've got the top and the bottom, you've got east and west, and giving and receiving are the exact opposites. So what Paul has done by taking this verse from Psalm 68 is to turn the whole thing completely on its head. Not God as a warlord who is victorious and then vindictive, but God who is a warlord who fights against the powers of evil in this world in Jesus Christ and then is generous and benevolent. And the very reason why Paul was able to turn this quote on its head is because Jesus is a very different kind of king than King Charles or the kings and the queens of this world. Traditionally, earthly kings have wanted to fight battles to increase their land or increase their um, money and their economic value, demanding homage from people that they uh, conquered. But Jesus is a different kind of king. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a material, worldly, earthly kingdom. And in that spiritual kingdom, Jesus wants to give gifts, to share something of the power that enabled him to win that battle against the principalities, the devils and the demons, and all that damages and spoils our life. Now, at this point, you may want to ask, well, what did he give? I'm going to say, come back next week, because Lansford's preaching. <laughs> no, come back next week, because it's Pentecost. 
And uh, we shall be thinking then, obviously, about the coming of the Holy Spirit and all the gift, gifts that God gave and the fruit that follows from that gift. So that's, that's, in a sense, a trailer for next week. But now, just for now, I want to stick with this picture of the victorious but benevolent king. The one who is generous in victory rather than vindictive in victory. And I think there are ways in which we can reflect that benevolence in the way that we live. And I want to tell you two short stories, true stories, both of which come from the Second World War, and that illustrate something about this magnanimity in victory. The first story is about the economic challenges that faced Europe after six years of war. All the nations that had been involved in the conflict of the Second World War spent huge sums of money in waging war and were becoming economically impoverished. War always involves spending money which is, could well be spent much better on improving the quality of life for people and doing wonderful things. Waste of money. But three years after the war had ended, there came the American initiative known as the Marshall Plan. Its official title was the European Recovery Program. And the United States of America transferred huge sums of money, the equivalent in today's value, I'm told, of 173 billion pounds. It's quite a lot of money, isn't it? it uh, and uh, that was an economic recovery program uh, to Western European countries. And not just to the Allied forces. That's the point. Not just to the Allied forces. Just over 10% went to West Germany, part of the enemy forces. And that's quite striking, isn't it? And when Andrew Marr, the broadcaster and writer, came to write his book about a history of modern Britain, um, he says, he describes that Marshall Plan as Washington's most unsordid act. I'm sure there are many things that the Washington government have done, as most other governments have done, that are piled high with self-interest. But Andrew Marr says that was Washington's most unsordid act. It's a story of some magnanimity at a moment when the vanquished could have had their noses rubbed in the dirt. So that's the first story. The second story... It's just a year or two before that. It comes from the summer of 1944 when the Red Army inflicted the most catastrophic defeat on uh, the Germans in the whole of their history. And the Germans lost up to half a million people. And after that Russian victory, the Kremlin ordered officers from the German army to be marched through Moscow. The focus was not so much on celebrating their victory but as humiliating the people that they had defeated. And thousands of German soldiers were marked through the streets of Moscow, wearing the clothes that they'd been captured in and looking pretty disheveled, and some of them not in the best state of health at all. And the citizens of Moscow had been made aware of this because this march, this victory parade, had been advertised on the radio. Many Muscovites turned out in order to watch. And some watched with great pleasure, and some shouted their curses. But then an old woman in the crowd just fixed her eye on one man who was so disheveled and looking so weak as if he would collapse that she broke through the cordon of the crowd. 
she rushed towards him and she thrust a crust of bread into his hand. And when she had done that, other people followed suit. It was an act of magnanimity in victory, not a rubbing of people's noses in the dirt. Now, I don't suppose you and I are likely to have any opportunity of doing anything dramatic on the international stage, like uh, organising a Marshall Plan. And I don't suppose we're likely to be caught up in anything of the drama of that Moscow street uh, in the aftermath of war. But we all get involved in all sorts of disputes and conflicts from time to time. Might be with husband, wife, partner, parent, child, sibling, neighbour, work colleague, all sorts of things. And you know, with some arguments you win them, and some arguments you lose them. What do you do when you win? Well, I told you all along, didn't I? I was right. Now you know. There are other ways of being treating people when we happen to be on the winning side of something. There is that living with a magnanimous spirit in the spirit of Jesus. Remember that when our Lord had achieved his victory on the cross and was taken up to heaven, he celebrated by giving gifts to the very people who didn't deserve them. And the recipients of those gifts were people like Simon Peter, who'd let him down, and like Saul of Tarsus, who was his persecutor, and who later became the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ is our very gracious King, and has set a wonderful pattern for our way of living. And has given us gifts to enable us to do just that. Amen. Charles Wesley wrote about those blessings that Christ bestows. We're going to sing now. Christ